Rise and Shine Pinchers, welcome back to another episode of Just a Quick Pinch. I'm your host, Connie Wang. Alrighty, you guys, we have one of our favorite all-time guests. We have nervous system coach Masha K back in the house, back on the podcast. So I wanted to chat all about emotions today because emotions feel like to me almost like a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing uh, in healthcare as a provider because I feel like, you know, we go into these healthcare professions because we want to do good in the world. We want to help others and create these positive emotions. But it can also feel like we aren't allowed to have or show emotion because that almost seems like a sign of weakness, right? We're taught to be really stoic and like all these really masculine traits of not showing emotion are supposed to be powerful and confident. Also, on the flip side, the biggest thing I've realized since graduating school is just how much of my day is spent emotionally regulating others. I was not... Uh, expecting this, I guess. Um, You know, a lot of my day is about regulating my emotions, my patients' emotions, my team of assistants, a hygienist and front desk, they all have emotions too. I feel like I'm constantly kind of navigating this and working on a team to provide care for patients in need is just innately an emotional job. Um, And I think there's an important place for emotions in our lives. I just think that there has to be a healthy balance of how we process these emotions And when we think about it, we can actually use these emotions. I really believe, like I said, there is a place and a use for these emotions as tools to connect better than ever with our patients. Emotions can help us align our actions to our goals. And most powerfully, emotions can actually help us rewrite those narratives that we're stuck telling ourselves. And instead, they helped us craft the narratives that we want for the future. So anyways, without further ado, let's get on to the main episode. This is actually part one of a two-part series with Masha. There was just so much good info in our recording that I just had to break it up into two sections. So without further ado, here's part one with Masha. Okay, Masha. So first things first, the first topic that I wanted to jump into today is actually emotions because something that I didn't realize when I first started working as a dentist, I don't know if you realize this as a patient, but I feel like healthcare and dentistry is actually very emotional. Did you ever, I'm curious, as a patient, did you ever like pick up on like how emotional it all is? You know, that's like such an interesting question because I don't know if I ever picked up on that on my own because of my own kind of like specifically with the dentist. I was actually always very afraid of the dentist. So I think my own fear would just like completely, you know, numb everything else. But as I started working with people in healthcare, Mm -hmm. and I really heard their perspective, I think that was kind of shocking to realize just how dysregulating that is. Yeah. And just like, what a big component, component, the emotional intelligence really is, and the emotional regulation really is. Yeah, I feel like I look back on like schooling and I'm like, yeah, school taught me how to like hold the drill and do the thing. But I'm like, school did not tell me at all how to read people, like manage emotions on a team, not just, you know, actually, it's probably a good thing that you never notice as a patient, the emotional thing, because that means that your doctors and your staff were really well controlled. (laughs) But I wanted to start off there because... So I'm in Masha's group program. It's called the Mind Body Recalibration. It's a six month program and it's just been like so transformational. Can you share with us, you like blew my mind with this fact about how there actually is like a physiological amount of time that it takes for your body to process emotions. Yeah, I know this fact blew my mind as well when I first learned it. But basically what we are finding is that an emotion, which is really just sensations in your body, it's a chemical reaction in your body, right? That chemical reaction actually lasts on average 90 seconds. So 
you know, there are many different emotions. It's a wide spectrum, but an emotion, which is that chemical reaction, really is only about 90 seconds, which is really shocking because most people would say, yeah, but I feel it for hours, days, weeks, right? And the truth is, that's not the emotion itself. What's really happening there is as your body is starting to produce all these chemicals, right, and trying to mobilize, because emotions are there for survival. Mm. Your body, your nervous system is picking up that something is wrong, and then it's adjusting, and these emotions are helping you deal with that situation, right? So there's this chemical reaction, there's this mobilization that's happening. And as that's happening, most of us, instead of allowing that energy to move and those emotions to just be felt and processed, kind of like like a wave, you know, it reaches mm-hmm. a peak. And then it drops. Instead of allowing that, when it reaches that peak, we start kind of creating stories and narratives about Mm. what we're feeling. And as we start thinking about it, that 90 second clock basically restarts. Because what most people think is feeling emotions is actually them thinking. They're not feeling, they're thinking about their emotion. And every time you start thinking about it, you send the message to your body. It's like, okay, produce more of that. And so the, the cycle just keeps restarting. You think about it, it creates an emotion. You start to feel the emotion, you think about it more. And so it's this downward spiral where that 90 second clock basically keeps restarting over and over and over again. Now, what about for someone that is so used to thinking about their emotions all the time? How can we really discern like, okay, no, I'm thinking about it versus I'm actually feeling it? Because it's almost like when you, it's like, I don't know how to be any other way if I'm not intentional about it. Yeah. And I think this is like at first the hardest part for people because they're like, no, 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 I am feeling my emotions. Right. And I, and I think what they mean is I am feeling something intense Got and it. I totally believe that you are feeling something intense, but to feel your emotion is actually almost to get out of your head and to get into your body and be with the sensations in your body versus thinking about the sensations in your body. Okay. Do we have to, in order to feel your body or feel your emotions, do you have to like be in a quiet room, be alone? Like, what does that really look like? Yeah. So don't get me wrong. Being in a safe environment, a place where you can get away from everything is going to make it easier for you to shift your awareness inward, right? Because when there is threat, a threat in our environment, it doesn't feel safe to go inward, which is why we disconnect from our body and we focus on the threat, right? Like if you were running from a tiger in the wild, you probably wouldn't be aware that like your foot hurts, right? Right, That just wouldn't be in your awareness. You would realize that afterwards when you feel safe. And so Mm -hmm. that's on purpose that we disconnect from our body when we feel threatened. But what I'm asking to do when I'm saying feel emotions is be aware of your body, be present. So being in a safe environment, which might be a quiet room, it might be stepping outside, it might be getting away from the threat, is helpful. Like we have to acknowledge that, Okay. right? That doesn't necessarily mean that we can't feel our emotions in the moment. That might just take a little bit more practice because when I'm saying feel your emotions, I'm saying as the emotion is happening, instead of thinking about it, making stories about it, I'm not good enough, this person doesn't like me, what's wrong with me, which is like what starts to happen in our minds, mm-hmm. right? What I'm asking you to do is you can notice that story, the narrative, the thoughts, you kind of just observe them. And then you start asking yourself, where do I feel that emotion in my body physically and actually pinpointing it? And so a lot of times people say, you know, like I feel it in my chest and then they want to keep going. And I'm like, no, 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 just notice it in your chest. Okay. What is that sensation in your chest? Well, I feel something, but okay. What do you feel? Is it a tightness? Is it a tingling? Right? I ask them like something that I find really helpful is I'll ask people, imagine the sensation in your body as 
millions of individual little units, and they are working together to create that sensation. And so what I'm asking you to do, and I'm saying feel what's in your body is, can you, what is that sensation? What are those units doing? Are they tightening? Are they vibrating? Are they moving all over the place and shaking? But you have to pause long enough to become aware of that, right? And then you notice that sensation and then you sit with it, meaning you feel that and you just get curious about it, which is where the, like the skill of being curious and open and befriending yourself really comes in of like, okay, what is that sensation? And when I watch it, does it get more intense or less? Does it move up or down, right? And you're watching it. And so to me, that is being in your body. And think about how different that is than how most people describe feeling emotions. Again, what they're describing is a series of thoughts in their head that comes along with a certain discomfort in their body. And I guess the one thing I'll say is, if you're really in your head when you're feeling emotions and you're having a lot of thoughts, that's actually your way of running away from your body. It's like your mind is trying to distance itself from the discomfort by trying to intellectualize as if it could find like the answer Mm. that discomfort will go away, which it actually won't. Right. We're like trying to think our way out of it. But again, that's like perpetuating the problem because then you're not feeling it and then it's not going through that 90 second cycle. Exactly. And it's kind of like if you think of an emotion as like a wave, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. You trying to think your way out is the equivalent of trying to like outswim a wave. It will eventually come crashing on you and then you go under versus if you went with the wave. I think this is one of the reasons why it's so helpful working with like a coach or like someone that can articulate this because when you said, you know, is it vibrating? Is it tightening? Is it contracting? Is it moving up and down? These are like adjectives that I would not have thought about my emotions. So when you tell me like... Um, describe where it is I could maybe tell you or in the beginning of our course (laughs) I could maybe tell you like okay it's in my chest it's in my throat or it's in my stomach but that kind of stopped there I feel like since I've started the course now now that you've given me like these terms or these adjectives to think of I'm like oh okay there is a nuance between the feeling of something tightening versus the feeling of expansion or vibrating yes exactly and it's like that nuance Mm. is you reconnecting with your body and being present in your body Mm. it's starting to understand that nuance and it's really when we start to be in our bodies and feel safer in our bodies that healing growth intuition all these things that we're looking for can be found right because like one of the ways we talk about trauma is like a key characteristic of trauma is you start leaving your body and going into your mind right and so a lot of us are very disconnected from our bodies and then we wonder why is it so hard for me to process emotions why is it so hard for me to connect with my intuitions because you're not in your body so these little nuances to be able to tell the difference is the foundational step of being feeling safe in your body mm-hmm. and being aware of your body which again most of us are not it sounds crazy but most of us are not aware of our bodies we're aware of our thoughts and It makes me think, too, I feel like something I wasn't expecting when I started work as a dentist was, like, I didn't realize how I'm kind of, like, I'm managing so many emotions all at once, not just my own. I'm already a human being trying to manage my own emotions, but now I have a team to consider since we all work together so closely. So... Let me do like like a little case study to like break it down. I feel like yeah. an average appointment for me is I walk in the room, immediately I sense an emotion from like the patient. Sometimes it's happiness if I'm really lucky, but a lot of times since I'm like the dentist, it's like that I can I can just feel it. Like the the patient is tense, they're quiet, they're very stressed. I can 
it's practically emanating at me. So I'm trying to manage that, right? I'm trying to unpack that and see how I can help them. You know, I'm working on a team with assistants and hygienists and like they're under a lot of pressure too. So then I'm picking up on their emotions. By the end of the day, I just feel like I'm such a sponge. I've absorbed everyone's emotions and I'm also not only absorbing them, I'm trying to like steer the ship and like lead my team as the dentist. Do you do you think there's anything I could do to help co-regulate these emotions because I feel like a lot of it is like feeding off of each other oh my gosh I mean you're so right it is feeding off each other and I think there is really so much complexity like in a way I could say okay I feel my clients emotions as well Mm. but my job is to help them regulate their emotions so yes I have to regulate my own and I do have my own emotions come up as I'm regulating them but that is the whole job whereas you have to do that Plus, you actually have to do your job, which is the dentistry, not the emotional regulation, right? But if you want to be effective, you need to be regulated. And if you don't want that person to be miserable, you need to somewhat help regulate them as well, right? So like, you're so right. There, There is so much complexity there. I guess the first thing that comes to mind for me is it's you getting regulated. I think what Mm -hmm. most of us think is put myself aside, Mm -hmm. just focus on them, right? I just need to make them feel comfortable. And I think that's where it gets a little tricky because if you're dysregulated, no matter how hard you try, they could pick up on it. Mm, Okay. You know what I mean? Maybe you have a friend or a partner who's like trying to act like they're not stressed or like they're fine, but you're like, I could tell they're not fine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They're they're trying so hard. They're doing everything right, but you can tell. And by the way, it's probably making you uncomfortable because their words are right. You know, their actions are right, but maybe in their facial expression, maybe in their tone, you notice a mismatch. You're like, yeah, you're doing all the right things, but something's off. And that actually makes human beings very uncomfortable. Like that mismatch makes everyone uneasy. And so all that is being said because I encourage you to think about like, how can I regulate myself? How can I connect with myself, come back into my body? Because the more I can do that, the more I could then be someone who can co-regulate them. And by co-regulate, I mean help regulate their nervous system because we could do that for each other but the truth is if i'm dysregulated i can't help you co-regulate right if anything i'll just i'll just make you more dysregulated too (laughs) exactly because it's kind of like contagious in that way if you're regulated it's going to be contagious to the people around you if you're dysregulated it's going to be very (laughs) contagious to the people around you you know so like i think as a leader and especially when you're in healthcare, it's really about okay, I could feel all of this. I could acknowledge that they're dysregulating me in this moment. And maybe I'm just feeling dysregulated because I have a life outside of this as well. How do I get into my body? And that could be something simple of like, just feeling sensation in your body. Those nuances you were talking about, Mm -hmm. this is where they become important. Because it could be as simple as like, okay, can I just feel my feet on the ground? Can I just place my hand on my chest for a moment? Can I just take a breath and feel as the air flows in? And then out, because that means you're already coming into your body. You're getting out of your head and coming into your body. And that alone could give you a little bit more of a foundation to feel grounded. But if you're completely out of your body, completely in your head, or completely engulfed in them, that's not going to happen. So it could be something that small of like, ooh, I noticed the dysregulation. Let me come back to myself. Hand on the body. Um, feel my feet on the ground. That's kind of the easiest one. If you're sitting in a chair, which I know you typically are not, like something I'll do in a session if I notice that is I'll see like, can I feel my back body? Oh, okay. Can I just feel points of contact along my spine? And it's interesting. You'll like notice a shift like back into yourself. Yeah. Like even right now, like we're engaging in a conversation, right? And you're probably very focused on me mm-hmm. and what you're going to say and what you're doing. But even notice that like, 
if I ask you, like, can you fe- feel your feet on the ground? I actually, as you were talking, I started putting my feet back on the ground. <laughs> I was like, let me just like ground myself again. I was on like a yeah, small like, chair. You notice there's like a little bit of a, like a shift, like a pulling away that happens. Yeah. That is so true. And I I have noticed, I think I started subconsciously doing this, is whenever something is just, like, not going right or getting tricky, um, the number one thing I heard when I first started is, like, don't let a patient see you sweat. So since you can't do that, you kind of have to, like, find other channels to ground yourself. So what I started doing is just, they won't notice because I'm behind them, but I'll just take, like, a really deep breath in and, like, straighten up. And this act of, like, um, have you heard of the Superman pose? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's that act of going like this. I don't know how the chemicals all work, but it really does wonders for me. Oh my gosh. Posture is so big. I mean, it makes so much sense because, you know, I always think about if you see somebody like just walking down the street and you Uh just see their posture, if you think about it, their posture will tell you so much about their lived experience. Uh. Ah. Think about it. Like if someone walks into the room, you know nothing about them and their chest is up, their shoulders are back, they're really relaxed. You already kind of have an idea of like what their life must have been like, mm-hmm. how they feel about themselves, right? Versus someone who comes in like this, right? Doesn't make eye contact. You already have an idea of okay, what must have happened to that person, right? Because basically, like your body takes on the form of your experiences over time. If you're constantly used to feeling small, your body almost like starts to like shape into that, you know. So like that just goes to show that our posture is really a reflection of our emotional state and our lived experience. But by that logic, if we change our posture, mm-hmm. we almost like feel differently because it's sending a different message to our brain about what's happening. So there is so much power in like opening your shoulders. You will feel different, like even in just a moment of like, if you try it right now, if you pull your shoulders back yeah. versus and like kind of just noticing how you feel, if you like tilt your chin up a little bit, right? Versus if you allow your sh- shoulders to hunch over, eyes look down you feel completely differently. You feel like a different version of yourself. Yeah, and it's like almost instantaneous. It's like one of the fastest ways to manipulate, I feel like, your psyche and everything. A hundred percent, like posture, breath, those are the biggest, the easiest tools, I think. It's like, what doesn't work is you can't think your way out of it. It's, as you're saying, the, the whole, like, um, you can tell someone's, like, lived experience and how, it's almost like you can see how, the, what their narrative of their life is like through their posture. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this reminds me of something that we unpacked in the hot seat. Um, I'll share, like, a little personal anecdote. Hot seat is something we do from her coaching program. It's awesome. We just kind of, like, it's like a hot seat. Like, so you say um, everything that you're going through and your progress on the journey, and then Masha gives her input. It's honestly, like, therapy, but, like, group therapy and it's awesome but basically something I shared I don't know if you'll remember this is how it's been a new challenge for me as a provider because I want my patients to trust me feel like I'm confident but so much of my identity for my whole life has been being the youngest sister the little one and I've noticed one of the patterns I've been trying to break through this program is I tend to lean into that identity being the little one and um being the the young one, the inexperienced one. But the thing is, like, I don't want my patients to ever feel like I'm not confident or, like, competent or things like that. So it's been a challenge kind of shedding that little sister, underling, youngest child identity and trying to show up authentically because it's not authentic if I'm like, hey, I'm, like, trying to act like an older sibling now. And that's just not, I don't, my patients would be weirded out by that too. But it's like, how can I embrace my identity as the younger child? Because I want to be authentic to who I am but in a way that still exudes confidence and competence. Yeah. Well, you're so right. We're kind of shifting the conversation to identity, but you're right. It's about like these narratives we have of ourselves and how we often feel 
safe with a very with a particular narrative about ourselves or a particular identity and as we're trying to grow it's kind of like there's a challenge of authenticity i think what you're saying you're like okay that's what i'm comfortable with but i don't really want that identity but is it me faking it right to embody a different identity is am i being inauthentic right and i guess what i want you to consider is it's not inauthentic because that identity you've taken on isn't authentic either it's a oh. protective right? It's, it's what served you. Like that little sister identity you and I have spoken about mm-hmm. served you. It, it worked for you. It kept you safe. It had certain, like met certain needs of yours, right? And so you took on that protective mechanism, kind of like an armor to keep you safe. And so you stepping out of that is you removing the armor, which is going to at first feel uncomfortable. And I think we think, oh, that's being that's inauthentic. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I don't necessarily think it's inauthentic. And to me, the like the authenticity question isn't, it's less about how it looks on the outside and more about the intention from which it's coming from. Okay. That makes sense. Because if it's me hiding into this not hiding, but yeah, using that little sister identity kind of as a shield during like tough times when I want um, like sympathy or something or, you know, it's like, it's almost like if I try to use that as, as a tool, then that's not really authentic either. Right, exactly. And it's like, sure, you can go to the other extreme and now put on this armor of I'm so knowledgeable and I, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like a false confidence, like that would be inauthentic too. But when it's coming from trying like a a real place you're feeling differently and you're not trying to like fake it till you make it meaning internally you don't feel it but externally you're forcing yourself to do it Mm -hmm. right it's more about changing how you feel internally so like that little change in posture you really did feel differently yeah you internally felt differently and then your patient might see that so that's not you fake it till you make it like you taking on a posture and just like pretending you know what i mean so i think it's that difference of we're not faking it we're actually changing how we feel and then trying to show up a little differently. And actually, that's vulnerable. That's so powerful. I never thought about it that way. Even when you like said, like, oh, that's actually inauthentic for me to be, um, to be the younger sister. I'm sure that like maybe, I've, maybe through our program, we discussed this before. But I was like, oh, that's right. I didn't even stop for a second to think that that could be me being inauthentic, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think it kind of just reframes it. Because I think sometimes like we take like our personality or identity to be like who we are. Mm-hmm. We like over identify. Like as a fact. We're like, this is a fact and yeah. it doesn't change. And we don't, we don't allow ourselves to think that we could change or be different. Exactly. And I think that's where we get into like kind of like a danger zone where you're like, well, I am a person who's a little sister, mm. like who's consistently the little one. Or I am nervous or I am anxious. It's like, no, that's just a fact about me. When in reality, all those things are protective mechanisms. So at one point you put that on meaning you could take it off. Right. And that's like our protector part. That was another thing that I feel like every day I'm kind of trying to unpack more. So now I, this is actually a good segue to go into befriending. Befriending is, um, it's the first stage of our group program. I want you to go into why befriending is so important because for me personally, befriending has explained why every other self-help book I've read hasn't helped, why every podcast I listen to hasn't helped. To some extent they have, but I always find myself back in the same place until doing this program and the befriending phase is why. So please explain that. <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy because that was exactly my intention. So I just, mm. I love that you felt it. And because I did, I, that was the difference for me. And so I'm so excited to hear that. But the reason that, 
So let's talk about like what the befriending phase is, because sometimes that feels like an obvious word, but I think it's actually not. So the befriending phase is where we are trying to learn about ourselves. I guess that's the simplest way of saying like you're trying to be a friend to yourself. Think about when you're forming a friendship with someone new, you're trying to get to know them. You're trying to have an open mind and to be curious. You're not trying to like label them and judge them and shame them. You don't have any context to do that with, right? You're like, okay, you are this way. Where does that come from? What's that about? You know, what was your childhood like? And you're trying to like collect these facts and you have this open curiosity that's not judgmental, right? It's like, we're trying to apply that to ourselves because often we're not very curious about ourselves. We think we know everything and we're not like very nice to ourselves. We're not a good friend to ourselves. We're constantly shaming and judging and trying to fix. And so in this phase, I pretty much tell people in the beginning, I'm like, I know you guys want to change. That's why you're in this program. I totally get that. And I think that's beautiful. Change and growth is beautiful. However, in this phase, we are not trying to change anything. And I actually ask people to put that on hold. And instead, to use this time as an opportunity to really understand yourself, the things about yourself that you don't like, the parts of yourself you don't like, the parts of yourself you want to fix, your job in this phase is to understand where is that coming from with an open curiosity, not judgmental, right? Just being really genuinely curious to like, how, how has this actually served me? Because any way of being, any part of you, no matter how much you don't like it, no matter how bad you think it is, no matter how uncomfortable it is, if that behavior is there, it probably served you at one point. It did, in fact, serve you. It protected you at one point, right? And so our job in the befriending phase is to understand that all these parts of ourselves that we're usually rejecting, shaming, and pushing away, we kind of want to bring in and be curious about them. Why is that here? How has this served me? How has this protected me? Because if it didn't, it wouldn't be here. Mm. And I find that when we do that, change becomes so much easier because then change isn't coming from a place of shame. It's coming from a place of acceptance and love and understanding, which is the fertile soil for change. And it's exactly why every other, you know, like the other motivational speakers that you listen to Mm. weren't working is because they weren't addressing that. It was like, oh, I don't like this about myself. How do I change it as fast as possible? But there's such a danger to that, right? Because if you're trying to change something about yourself from this place of I'm broken, I need to be fixed. I don't like that. Then even if you do fix it, quote unquote fix, you change temporarily, change the behavior. All you did was reconfirm that you were broken or not good enough to begin with. Right. You like validated that narrative. Exactly. Whenever we're fixing, we're saying I'm broken. Something that needs to be fixed was once broken. Right. And so even if you fix the behavior, like, oh, I was really messed up to begin with. (laughs) I was really broken to begin with. Yeah. And that actually is not motivating. In fact, that makes us shut down. Right. So this is really a way to learn to motivate yourself without shame and then learn to create change on this foundation of self-love and self-acceptance. And it's not that I want to change because I'm broken. It's I want to change because I'm capable of growth because I deserve this. You know, what's interesting is when we talk about this whole like like the change that we're doing and bettering ourselves, things like that. I kind of always thought like when I heard befriending yourself, I thought it would be like. I thought befriending myself would be like, oh, like everything's okay, like radical self-acceptance and like I'll just become complacent about everything like and then I'll just always be happy. Like I thought that's what befriending was going to be. It it just sounded really like fluffy and nice and I thought that's what the I thought that's what the change in the work was going to look like. But what I noticed is as I was doing your whole befriending module, I realized it was actually the opposite. I started calling myself out a lot more 
which on paper, that sounds really harsh. That sounds like the opposite of befriending yourself. But what I realized was it was actually as a result of me befriending myself, because when I befriended myself, I had enough context and understanding of like my story where I was able to call myself out in a rational manner, be like, you know, you're not actually doing the things that you think you're doing. Um, But calling myself out just hurt less because it didn't feel like it was antagonizing who I was. It was just antagonizing my actions, which I could change. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. There, there are so many things. You said that so beautifully. It's so incredibly true. Like I love how you said that because you're so right. I think befriending and self-love and self-acceptance, it sounds very fluffy. Yeah, yeah fluffy. It sounds like we're just doing that because that's what you got to do. And then once you do it, like you're just not even going to want to change anything because you're just so perfect, right? Like it's this very fluffy thing. And and it's funny because I don't actually consider myself a very fluffy person. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not very fluffy. So this is not fluffy work. Right. And it's exactly what you said. It's we're actually doing that because once you could befriend yourself, that's the only time you could truly hold yourself accountable. Mm-hmm. I think people think that shaming themselves is holding them accountable. Yeah. And it's actually the exact opposite. I actually think shaming yourself is the easiest cop out. Right. Because if you look at something you did wrong and you're like, oh, how would I do that? I'm such an idiot. What's wrong with me? I'm so broken. I always do this. I never. And you on and on and on. You're basically saying, yeah, you're broken. Just stay this way. You know, you're just messed up. Sorry. And then it's a cop out from actually taking action. Now, what's really happening in your nervous system is when you are shaming yourself or someone is shaming you, your nervous system starts to shut down. Shame is the quickest way to go into our dorsal survival state which is like staying safe through immobilization right so that when you're just like i can't do anything i'm just overwhelmed that exhaustion that's like zoning out what could feel like even depression right the easiest way to get to that state is through shame if you've ever been shamed by someone a parent a teacher a coach you've probably experienced it you don't feel motivated maybe for a short term right but ultimately you just feel depleted exhausted like it's pointless and so when we shame ourselves, that's what we do. We just completely shut down and then we don't really take action. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so in a way that like shaming yourself, which a lot of people are like, well, that's how you hold someone accountable. That's how you hold yourself accountable. It's kind of a cop out. It's actually not making you more accountable. Mm-hmm. It's giving you a reason to not do anything at all a lot of the time or to just keep, you know, frantically be doing everything in all different directions with no intention. Yeah, I think that we think that the easy way, the way with, like, less resistance is, like, the way it should be. But that's exactly why it's the easy way is because the the resistance, like, you actually kind of probably subconsciously know that's the that's the path. But that's the hard one. And that might take a while and that might be uncomfy. So let's just stick to what we know and what feels easy. That's so true. And I think this is where it gets a little messy for people because it's like, Well, shaming yourself, you know, the argument could be made. Shaming yourself is not easy. That's tough love. That's being hard on yourself. That's me doing the hard thing. But for people who have a tendency to be very hard on themselves, the overachievers, the perfectionists, the people who are just, again, very, very hard on themselves, their biggest critic, it's not hard for them. It's the easiest thing in the world. It's second nature Mm. to them. They're doing it all the time. So on the outside, it looks hard, but... In reality, it's so easy because it's the most familiar thing. What's much harder is ask those people to be loving to themselves. That would actually be really hard. But you see how on the outside it could be perceived like, no, tough love is the hard thing. And I always do the hard thing. I get a lot of those clients. And I used to be that person of like, I always do the hard thing, like taking pride in 
you know, the hustle and the shaming myself. And I think that's where it gets confusing. It's like, no, you're telling yourself you're doing the hard thing, but you're actually doing the easiest thing of all. Well, yeah, we kind of talked about this a little bit. I would like take so much, I guess, pride in being like, no, I'm the one that like works hard and stays in. Like that's going to be my narrative. But I was like hiding behind that because I didn't think I was deserving of being able to well so for some context I used to think (laughs) this is really me exposing all of my things I've been unpacking I used to think that if I really doubled down on my identity of being like a hustler working hard things like that then that would bring me to success but it was either one or the other because I felt like I couldn't have it all I I felt like I, I couldn't have fun on a Friday night and be successful at the things that I do um like I like I couldn't be like those people that had fun doing that and I think as a big change I've started to implement is thinking like, what if I could have it all? What if I could be one of those people? What if like that is possible for me? I think something that is difficult is sometimes I think that we confuse our emotions that, you know, negative emotions, things like that. I think we confuse them as parameters for like success or metrics for success. Kind of like, I just feel like sometimes if we feel something negative, we're like, therefore that must be bad for me. Like, I'm going to avoid that. Like, like, like you said, it's almost like we use our, our negative emotions as our like protector parts. And we're like, Ooh, like touch a hot stove. I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. When really it's like, maybe we like need those negative emotions. Do you feel like negative emotions are like a part of this? Like we need to have that. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think, I think I see what you're, what you're touching on here, almost like as a society or as a culture, we're programmed to avoid negative emotions. Like in general, of course, as human beings, we don't like discomfort. Everyone across the board doesn't like discomfort and we pull away from that. Right. But I think also culturally, there's a little bit of like avoid negative emotions. Negativity is bad. Struggling is bad. Right. There's this great book called Wintering and it basically talks about how like the winter, like we have a metaphorical winter, like when we're feeling sad or having negative emotions or going through difficult seasons of our life. And this book talks about how often in our cultures, in our culture specifically, we, we almost like, we like run away from those people or like we judge or shape or like, Oh, you're going through this tough time. Like, I don't want to catch it. Right. Like somehow inferior of like, you're not doing it quite right. If you're not super happy when in reality, like we need the winters. Right. Like the wintering is so important. If you think about the seasons, it's in the winter when it's barren, when actually there's all that growth happening beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. And that's what allows for the growth in the spring. Right. But I think we avoid those negative emotions. And I think when we avoid the negative emotions, we're also avoiding that metaphorical spring that would Mm. come if we were able to be with our emotions, move through those waves. And at the end of it, be able to see like, wait, what was I so afraid of? What were my fears? What were my insecurities? What do I need to work through? You know, those negative emotions are trying to point you to something, but you need to kind of feel those negative emotions, move through them, process them, right? Like whether you use the analogy of the wave of like, stop running, swimming away from the wave, go with the wave. Or, you know, sometimes with emotions, we use the analogy of like a tunnel. It's like you're going into this black tunnel. You just got to keep walking through it to get to the other side to see the light. Whereas most people, they get in, it's dark and they're like, I don't want to go. And they yeah, like, yeah. Run they just sit there. You know, like in the middle of the tunnel, be like, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. You gotta move through that tunnel. And I think when you move through the tunnel of the negative emotions, you do, you, you get to the light and which is, you know, to me, like the lessons, the growth, Mm. the opportunities, the knowledge about yourself, like the depth, the change, like, I think that all comes, I think that all comes from that. (laughs) 
Alrighty, you guys, that was part one with Masha. I hope you guys enjoyed part one. If you did, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we'll see you guys next week for part two, all about goal setting and triggers and why triggers can actually help us create better goals. So that's the main episode coming out next Tuesday. But the fun doesn't stop there, people. We are a twice-weekly podcast, okay? And be sure to check out Chief Complaints. Our anonymous advice segment episode is coming out on Friday as well, along with our Golden Bachelor recap. So we'll see you guys on Friday for Chief Complaints. Bye!